The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to Business is Boring. I'm not sure people in New Zealand completely get how big a thing Zuru is. Over the last 20 odd years, they have built to be one of the world's biggest toy companies, doing billions in revenue and leading categories. They've also shaken up stale retail grocery product categories and have used the profits to build out what could be a world-changing approach to building. Anna Mowbray, built the business with her brothers, living and working across China and Hong Kong until caught here by the pandemic. What does it take to grow such an impactful company? How do you get the systems and culture? And then why, once you've done it once, would you go back in to launch another startup like Anna recently has with Zeal, an app looking to do for recruitment and career building what apps have done to dating, news and social networking. Joining us now, to talk the journey, the purpose, leading zeal, and what's next. Anna Mowbray joins us. Tanakwe, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, and what positive energy you bring first thing in the morning. I love it. (laughs) Bouncing around reading the intro. So, take us back to the beginning there. Like, how did you come to be part of Zuru in those early days? And like, what was it like? Because there's kind of the stories in the world about, um, you know, sleeping on the floor and living in rural China and the like. And it sounds bananas. How hard? <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly was bananas. Um, how did I first come about heading over to China and, and joining what was to become uh, the rocket ship of, of Zuru? Um, you know, Matt, my older brother, uh, originally founded the business and he started off actually when he was 12 with his first ever product, which was a kit set model hot air balloon. Um, which fast forward sort of uh, 12 years, um, he started to want to commercially manufacture. Um, And as part of that journey, he decided that the best place to be was actually over in China. Um, You know, 90% of the world's toys were made out of China and it was just uh, the ideal location to be situated to be able to really build a vertically integrated business. Um, And so he, uh, he, he sort of kept on chatting to me and, and trying to convince me to come over and join him in China. And I was actually halfway through a four-year degree in food technology at that point in time. And all of the other siblings hadn't completed a degree, so I've got three brothers. Um, and I turned around to him and said, no, I'm going to be the first of the family to actually get a degree. Um, you're going to have to wait until I'm finished. So I finished up my degree in food tech. Um, I actually had a scholarship from Frucor to go and work with them. Um, and I think I lasted about eight weeks <laughs> before I upped and, and uh, jet set it off to, to the middle of China. Um, and it was 
an incredible, um, exhilarating, thrilling, you know, crazy, mad journey in the sense that I'd never really travelled. I'd never been to the South Island. Uh, and here I was heading straight into the middle of, of Guangzhou and not even into the middle of Guangzhou, a city of 15 million people, but out to a tiny little subsector of Guangzhou called Huadu, where there were less than a million people, or, or just, sorry, just just over a million people in, in Huadu at that point in time, which um, ultimately is, you know, almost was a quarter of the New Zealand population at that point, but a tiny little blip on the radar of the great scale of China. China. Uh, and so, I mean, I just remember getting in there and just being blown away by the chaos, the madness, the intensity. You know, you're walking into um, a city that is just a buzz with energy uh, until midnight and then doesn't wake up the next day until 10. And it's just so vastly different to what we had experienced growing up as country kids in New Zealand. Um, but I mean, those stories are all true. You know, I was I was living in, in the factory. Um, an hour and a half out of the centre of Guangzhou, uh, where there was really no other foreigners. I would have probably been, and I can quite convincingly say, the only white female in Huadu. Uh, and here I was living in a factory floor. Um, my bedroom was literally off the side of the offices. Uh, my shower was above the the toilet for all of the factory workers uh, and we all ate a shared lunch. We had uh, one chef who we uh, fondly named Ai and uh, she would cook for us every single day um, and you know those meals, I remember budgeting for them right and they were literally four RMB per meal which is about 50 cents New Zealand per meal for lunch and dinner um, and I think between you know Matt and I were, were both living in, in the factory um, through those first sort of uh, at least five years of being over there. And we spent, man and I spent over 10 years living in China, um, firstly in Guangzhou and then later down in Shenzhen um, before we moved on and uh, and finally positioned ourselves down in Hong Kong for a couple of years before coming back to, to New Zealand. Um, but it was, it was pretty... Uh, intense. Um, we were living hand to mouth. We had no money. We were literally scraping the barrel on a daily basis just to be able to support the business. Um, I remember so fondly uh, our really early employees and there was a handful of them that I would literally on a monthly basis have to approach and sort of say, hey, how much can you survive on this month? Um, if you don't mind, we just won't pay the remainder of your salary because we just need to push that towards this next this next purchase order. And, you know, those those that formative crew of, of people in, in the Zuru team are still with the business today uh, and they sacrifice so much in lieu of that bigger picture goal um, and the bigger vision. What was the thing that drove you to go so all in and why was it so important to be there as lots of people have managed to, you know, manufacture and produce and have partners in China um, without being so boots and all in, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think um, what allowed us to go so all in was the naivety. We had no understanding of how to do business any differently. Um, but the one element that we did know was being as close as possible to the source of the manufacturing um, would enable us to have a better understanding than anyone else across the industry into our sector um, and into being able to build our sector in the most cost-efficient, effective fashion possible. And I think this was the thing that really set Zuru apart from, and still does today, from any other organisation in the toy industry, is our 
our vertical integration is the element uh, that we have around knowing our business better than anyone else. Uh, we're so close to the source, which gives us this incredible ability to manoeuvre quickly, to manage quality at a higher level, to build automation faster and more impactfully than anybody else, um, to have that lower cost infrastructure, which ultimately enabled us to have um, a quicker path to profitability and then ultimately to be able to uh, optimise and build efficiency into our profitability more effectively than anybody else in the industry. So it just comes down to those nuances, right? I could tell you, you know, exactly what the hourly rate is per employee across, you know, five different regions of China. I can tell you what the cost is of a kg of uh, more raw PVC plastic. I can tell you what my hourly cost is to run an injection molder. And understanding those nuances enabled us to have the best foundational elements to be able to negotiate, to be able to manage our production lines, to be able to manoeuvre quickly and to be able to ultimately um, focus then on innovation and the product development cycle um, and nurturing that until we found our winners. Uh, and when we did find our winners, we had this incredible foundation to be able to leverage off of. So, um, you know, being close to the source was really impactful for us. It was difficult. It was, we had to sacrifice so much. You know, I spent all of my 20s living in China. Um, I don't think I would have had a day off in my 20s, right? I mean, we worked hard and we were consistently focused on betterment. How do we do a better job of everything we're doing on a daily basis? And Ultimately, that was our superpower, right? We were just so naive, so driven, so tenacious, and we didn't. Know, we just didn't know any different. Success was the only path forward. Yeah. What do you think made you have that sense of belief and powered that drive to be better and? You know, you know, because even just to have in the head the idea of having like one of the world's biggest toy companies and then believe it was within within reach, going from no capitalization really, like you know, tiny about to get started with, right? And then plowing everything back into the business. Like, yeah, where, where did that belief come from before you had the big accounts and the big hits? Yeah, I think it, you know, everything comes back to those formative years for you, right? And and your upbringing and, and the values that you get built into you as a, as a child. And, you know, we were incredibly privileged to have parents who supported our dreams and pushed us to dream big. Uh, and dad, no matter what we were doing, used to consistently say to us, and how are you turning that into a business? Mm. And how are you monetizing that? And where does that lead you? So he was a firm believer in the power of being self-employed. And so, you know, the, the fact that he nurtured that within us enabled us to unlock it without hindrance. So we were able to actually move down that path with confidence. And that is such a powerful thing to get given as a child, to understand that there really isn't such thing as failure, right? I mean, it's literally an opportunity to learn. And as soon as you look at failure for the negatives or even call it failure, I think you're going backwards, right? So, I mean, I, I often get asked, what is your biggest failure? And I really struggle with that question because I Honestly, and I can tell you right, hand on heart, I never look at anything as a failure. I literally look at it as an opportunity to do better next time. Um, and I think that that comes so much from those foundational elements that we had as children. I mean, we grew up in a household where there was no such thing as can't. I was not allowed to say the word can't. And if I said it, Dad would come up and would literally have a half-hour lecture around why that thing I'd said I can't do uh, 
could be done. <laughs> it was just such a positive environment that we grew up in and that really came through in everything that we've been able to achieve as adults. And that's amazing, hey, because like there's something very true about New Zealand's scale that means that it's so small that even if you are a big dreamer, you don't really know how big things can be. And then the scale of China is so enormous, you know, like just so wild when when um, you've, you've come from a small country. But then to compound that to be in a you know rural area outside of um, <laughs> outside of the main centres and stuff, and not be travelling through and seeing that, so it's it's kind of amazing what mindset can do. Hey, oh, I could not agree more. Mindset is absolutely everything, and you know, as soon as you're able to channel that into the right direction, what you can achieve is, you know, it, it really can surpass your dreams and goals. I mean, you talked earlier about, you know, the goal to become the biggest toy company in the world. I mean, it didn't start there, right? We started off with a goal to just make great product that we could ultimately sell into America. And then we started making great product that we could sell into America. And then we wanted to, you know, we wanted to go bigger. We wanted to hit the top 10 toy companies in the world. And then we wanted to hit the top five. And then we got to wanting to hit, become number one, right? So, I mean, these dreams, they don't have to start as huge and audacious and big as that. But as long as you're always moving forward, that's the ultimate. Mm -hmm. You mentioned before the vertical integration. Um, I think a really amazing example of that is the way that you responded to the COVID PPE shortages where the whole world at the beginning of COVID was scrambling to try and find masks and hand sanitizer and there were shortages everywhere which you know people may or may not remember and then you like spun up out of nowhere entire factories to produce these things in the middle of a shortage and then managed to get them over. Tell me about that process and how that vertical integration kind of works or allows that. Yeah, that was one of the more manic times of my life. Um, I think I still have a bit of PTSD over that. Um, but, you know, I came I came back from China right at the uh, start of the COVID pandemic and leaving China, which w was, you know, in an absolute flurry around COVID. Um, we had masks going in everywhere. We had temperature checks on every employee coming into the offices. We had factories starting to be shut down. We had airport starting to go under lock and key um, and then coming into New Zealand where we were completely nonchalant. There was nothing. I remember walking into the Auckland airport and just being shocked at the fact that it was empty. Right, I'd come from chaos into that and I remember landing and thinking, whoa, we've got a problem on our hands. Uh, and within sort of 24 hours of Arriving back in New Zealand, I jumped on the phone to, to John Key and I sort of said to him, what can we do to help? We've got a problem. We need to lock down. We need to figure out what we're doing as a country to protect ourselves right now because if you saw what I'd just seen in China, you'd be feeling the same way. And that was sort of the precursor for moving into the space of saying, how do we in the private sector help the public sector to achieve something for the betterment of New Zealand and to really help in this scenario, which is going to get a little bit hairy. Uh, and so it was at that point, or shortly thereafter, sorry, that Rob Fife ended up heading down to, to Wellington and setting up the task force team down there. Uh, and that was fantastic because he was such a great connector between uh, myself and, and what was going on down, down in uh, Wellington around the COVID, COVID um, 
reaction planning. And uh, we were we were in, in, in a lot of discussion and um, one of the things that I knew at that point in time was that PPE was going to be an absolute premium. And I'd, again, I'd seen the explosion of use of it a, across China. Uh, and so I was pushing really hard to, to, say to say to the government, what do you have in stocks? Where are you at and how can I help? Uh, and it was, it was Rob who actually turned around and said, I think we're going to need your support. Um, and at that point in time, we just jumped into action. I set up a team of um, 40 of our best sourcing talent team uh, and quality control teams. Um, and we actually put together little task force units um, that would go out with a sourcing person, a quality team, quality equipment, and we would literally flying around China trying to find the best FDA accredited facilities uh, that were making PPE at that point in time. And then we would set up teams in the factory. Um, I would and I'm quite literally saying send them in with bags of cash and we would siphon off the production lines of other countries their PPA. So I would literally sit there and take America's supply of you know, masks, and I would take the supply for the UK of sanitizer. Uh, and because we were there on the ground with our people, um, it made all the difference, right? And and at the same time as, you know, taking those supplies, I would be organising trucks to come into the factory to collect it, to take it to our consolidation facilities. Uh, and then I worked with Air New Zealand and we, I, you know, ended up chartering and I chartered in six uh, Air New Zealand cargo planes um, and delivered that first lot of PPE sort of two weeks after we'd first started um, the initiative. And I think at that point in time, it was about 3 million pieces of PPE, uh, which sounds like a lot, but that was nothing. It was a drop in the hat. Um, and over the course of the sort of next five months, uh, I brought in over 130 million pieces of PPA to support um, New Zealand and the population. But it was insanity. I mean, I was, I literally would have worked 14 16 hour days and I was just on the phone to China trying to understand the nuances and and the quality control uh, elements of PPE production, understanding exactly how um, a mask was made, exactly how sanitizer was produced, exactly how, how nitrile gloves were produced so that I could ultimately procure it in the best fashion. I mean, at one point I was buying material for the masks direct from the supplier, delivering it to the facility to ensure that our production could be made. And again, I was taking that supply of raw material off of huge other countries' supply chains um, just because we had the people on the ground in position enabling uh, and it had enabled them to be able to achieve that and make it happen. Um, and I think one of the key elements as well was that, you know, we invested heavily into making sure that we're doing it in a safe fashion too. So I actually brought all of the quality control equipment myself. And so we'd go in and we'd test the raw materials. We'd go in and we'd test the production lines. Uh, and then we would do random selections off of the production uh, flow as well, just to make sure that we were um, working towards those those standards of efficacy that we needed to have on the PP as well. So it was a it was a rapid fire learning experience for me. But those are the times that I, I actually love. Um, I really thrive in that newness, the excitement, the exhilaration of doing something like that. And I'll tell you what, this was a challenge. The way that you, you know. Um, you see the videos of the factories that you have made and the size of the teams and stuff. And yeah, I just really don't know that people in New Zealand kind of understand the scale or the wildness of some of the things that, you know, you've achieved with Zuru so far. 
like, you know, doing launches with, you know, Walmart of your first kind of like products. And yeah, you know, th- things things that are absolutely wild in the scheme of distribution um, and, um, you know, consumer goods. How is it? Yeah, and, and also the youth, like the extreme youth of like so many of the workers and that culture that you've had where people who can be like 23 years old and talking with like the category manager of the world's biggest retailers or, you, you, you know, running um, P&Ls that are, you know, in the hundreds of millions of dollars, you know. How do you create a culture where you have that kind of trust and meritocracy around young, talented people to kind of do things that have never been done before in those industries. Yeah, yeah. And I think it it all stems from the fact that we did it. So why can't others, you know, if you you give people the platform to have confidence in their abilities, to feel empowered, to be able to make decisions at the coalface, People inherently want to do the right thing. So if you actually uh, employ with that mindset and you you lead with that mindset, it's amazing what an individual can achieve. And I think that's really um, fundamentally it, right? We, we have always embodied meritocracy. Um, it's always been about your attitude and your capabilities and your desire to push yourself, your curiosity, your mindset, that really is what dictates your future. Um, and and I think we've also always tried to have a really flat structure, you know, how do you eliminate bureaucracy and how do you enable people to make the right decision at the right time at the right place rather than feeling like they need to go through layers of hierarchy. And that ultimately allows innovation, it allows speed, it allows agility, and it also allows for a team that has huge depth and huge scalability. And so I think it's it's really about fundamentally shifting your mindset around what matters when it comes to building talent. What was it like? Because, you, you know, you'd done so much to build the culture and the business and the operations and the systems. And then the kind of scale that you got to, it's kind of mind-bending. Like, what was the decision like to step out of the business? And, yeah, were there, like, kind of pinch-me moments when you kind of would wander in and see, you know, because we're talking, you know, 10 10 football field size factory floors, you know, like really, really big old, big old things. Pinch me moments wandering through kind of the, the, the scale of the operations produced. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's always pinch me moments. When you think back to where we started, and I, I always have these flashbacks in my mind when I talk about it and thinking about the environment that we lived in. Uh, and, you know, I think back to having my first child in the middle of the factory in Huadu, and I'm learning to crawl on these dirty, dirty factory floors and his bed being next to my desk in the office to today and, you know, these spotless, beautiful factories with, you know, amazing kitchens and huge automated machinery and just where we've come from is incredible. And I think that's what most people never truly understand is, you know, you look at it and it seems like it's just an overnight success. Um, But honestly, the grind and the dedication, and I talked about it earlier, but the sacrifice it took to get to there was huge. And that's what it takes to be great. It really does. And I mean, 
yeah, you look at it now, we've got um, some of the most incredible automated uh, facilities. We've got huge dreams and goals and aspirations. We've got over 8,000 people working across these facilities in China. Um, you know, Zuru ships to 121 plus plus countries. It's just incredible, um, the size and the scale. And yeah, there's definitely pinch me moments. Um, and I think we probably spent, you know, the first 10, 12 years um Never really looking at that, but more focused into never being enough. And it's really interesting actually coming back to New Zealand and people actually want to talk about it because it has got to um, quite an incredible, incredible place. And I think for a Kiwi kid, you don't like to celebrate too much, but um, I think coming back here has really sort of grounded me in, in the understanding that what we have actually achieved is pretty special. Yeah, like I think for New Zealand, I know a lot of whip-smart young folk who have come through Zuro, and I think one of the biggest things that's going to have as an impact on New Zealand is it's kind of put a bunch of people in their late 20s into the workforce who have no limits to what they think they can do and are used to doing stuff on a scale that's mind-bending. And I'll be really interested to see where where that kind of crop of people, what they do next is all great, you know, trade me, help make zero, which help make fair, which help make all the rest of the ecosystem. Like every great company kind of has a huge effect into the future. Yeah, definitely. Nurturing, nurturing that next level of talent coming through, that excites me. And I get, yeah, I get so passionate about seeing people not only succeed at, at great scale and levels in any business that I'm, I'm leading, but also in their futures and where they go to next. And I think, yeah, we won't be surprised to see some of these incredible individuals go on and do great things. Yeah, what was the decision to jump out? As I've seen you write, write uh, say somewhere that you didn't want Zuru to be the biggest mountain or hill, hill that you climbed kind of thing. Um, but that's a pretty big hill, right? Like, what's the, <laughs> what's the kind of um, decision process to, to, to step out? Yeah, it's, and it's always a tricky decision to make one like that, but there was something in me that's always known I was going to do something else and something different and something really individualised um, and I don't mean individualised as in only doing it myself but without the unit of myself, Matt and Nick, I wanted to do something where I had to stand on my own feet and I had to prove that to myself um, and so incredibly difficult decision to make but one of the most empowering ones I've ever made uh, in the sense that you know pulling yourself out from something that is so secure and so exciting and so dynamic and then saying, I want to do it again. Um, and I want to do it again for myself, for my children um, and for for others as well. Like I want to really make an environment that um, is incredible for those that work within it and achieve something great, not just for myself, but for them as well, taking others along on that journey. Uh, and so, yeah, it was it was, it was was really important to me that I, I didn't make Zuru the greatest mountain that I ever climbed, and I want to climb another. And it's going to be hard to potentially make one as big, but I want to climb another that is as exciting. Um, and that really challenges me to step outside of my comfort zone, to learn, to grow, to develop, to, to build a new subset um, and a subset of skills uh, and to really push myself out of, out of that comfort. And we'll be back in a moment with Anna Mowbray to talk climbing the next mountain with the app Seal.
Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Okay, my Arno, welcome back to Business is Boring, where we're with Anna Mowbray talking about starting zeal. So, yeah, you mentioned, you know, wanting to give yourself another challenge. It must be amazing to step out of a kind of world where you'd built it to a scale and you had the operations behind you that you kind of could make anything imaginable happening, happen, right? Like, which is quite remarkable. And then I've gone into a completely different world of software, making an app, building a, you know, product in a small market to start with. Yeah, tell us about, you know, what the idea was that led you to Zeal. And I guess, like, giving yourself that challenge of starting in 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 a completely different zone. Yes, it was very outside of my comfort zone. And that's what I loved about it. You know, I wanted to do something that stretched me in ways I'd never been stretched before and pushed my limits. Uh, and that that's really the fundamental reason that I, I moved into tech and into the tech space. Um, and so, you know, Zeal kind of came about off of the understanding of knowing my purpose uh, and knowing what drives me and what builds the passion in me. And really overarchingly that comes down to empowerment of people i love seeing those around me grow develop build their confidence and ultimately unlock their potential you know going on to succeed and achieving goals that that were audacious or difficult or challenging and i really get a lot out of that and that's been something that has come through in my entire journey of of leadership. Um, And so as soon as I understood that as well, I knew that what I wanted to do next had to be people-centric. So I spent a lot of time looking up and down um, the people tech stack and trying to figure out where there was an entry point in this industry or area of expertise that I loved so much. Um, And I very quickly realised that job marketplaces had never been disrupted. And I mean, literally no innovation in them in a very long period of time. And if you sort of backtrack on that, you know, jobs started off as a classified in the back of the newspaper, text TV, tile format. Um, Along came the internet 30 odd years ago. And at that point in time, some very clever people picked up those job ads and put them onto a web page in a text-heavy tile format. And since then, there has been no innovation. That is still today exactly what job marketplaces look like. And as soon as I realised that, I, I started diving a little bit deeper and said, so how else does this industry or the sector work. And at, at that point, I realised that not only was there no innovation, but it was a very monopolised category. So it's got big, stodgy players that are doing nothing to change the game. Uh, and in New Zealand, you've got Seek, who owns 56% of the market. Um, and because of that, they've been able to really 
have a declining innovation cycle whilst at the same time simultaneously increasing their commercial models to their end consumers. So charging companies more whilst innovating less. Um, And that's a recipe for success for your shareholders, but ultimately that's removing the competition and the layers of intricacy that are required to keep a a sector progressing forward. Um, And so I actually got really excited at that point in time when I realised that and I realised that someone could come in and do something wildly different in this space. And don't get me wrong, this is an inherently difficult thing to do and and, and to build, um, that being a marketplace, because you've got two sides of the equation that you need to add extreme levels of value for in order for, to be successful. Um, and it takes time. It, it takes time and it takes a lot of strategic forethought and planning and, stri- and, and strategy. So, um, I guess that gives you a little bit of an idea around how I how I came to to the position of saying what do we do in this space to really shake it up, um, and then I was I was sitting down at the desk one day sketching away trying to figure out what I was going to do in this in this space, and I just had that aha moment and I sat there and I sketched up you know a phone with a Tinder you know, card in it, um, but I turned that into into a job. And I said, I, we just have to build the Tinder for jobs. It was this aha moment of saying, I understand how well this whole concept of the swipe can work in this scenario, right? The ability to show intent and preference in one move and and build visualisation into, into the hunt. And, you know, that first step for any job seeker is to have your interest peaked. And what's the best way to peak interest? It's with visual stimulation. So understanding that and then coupling that with um, my deep entrenched knowledge of, you know, recruiting within organisations um, and then building upon that with, you know, hundreds or thousands of conversations to some of our most experienced and, and, and um, you know, progressive people in the HR sector or who had started HR tech-related businesses enabled me to start to mould something that can be really meaningful in the sector. Um, And I guess, you know, when it comes down to a marketplace and adding value on both sides, for the candidate, it's really about building this amazing emotional journey. So really tapping into what are the trigger points um, for a candidate, you know, and that comes first and foremost down to it being app first um, and app native. And then it comes down to being seamless and intuitive. Uh, And then it also gets laid with being fun and engaging and in some ways a little bit gamified. Um, But just simplifying the whole process and making it more emotionally engaging, more enjoyable for a candidate is a huge element. Um, And then from there, we've got, I mean, there's a lot more innovation that's going to come on the candidate side down the track, which I'm excited for. Um, But for now, that's a huge step change. Um, And then for organisations, it's really about enabling organisations to manifest their stories, um, to utilise all of this amazing footprint to build storytelling, to build an emotive connection, to showcase who they are, to demonstrate what they can do for you as a candidate and how they can add value to your career path and your career journey. Um, And so, you know, thereafter as well, the ability for them to build brand equity um, and to really be able to tap into a talent pool in a different, new, unique fashion and way. Yeah, it's kind of wild how the job applicant process is still so anonymous and reactive 
when so much of the world has gone into um, building social networks and building pipeline and there's all these other areas of business and life where you wouldn't expect to sell a product if you had done no pre-marketing or built up a kind of audience who would be interested. Yet, a company just puts a shitty-looking ad on a shitty website and expects to get great candidates? It's kind of bananas. <laughs> yeah, it, honestly, it is It is bananas. When you stop and you look at the space, you realise how backwards it really is. So, I mean, that for me is exciting, right? If I can come in and work harder than anybody else and be different and pave a new path and step outside of my comfort zone and really trial things, you know, test and trial and talk to more people and keep the customer at the centre of every decision, um, I won't get it right every time. I really won't. And there's going to be people that hate it. Um, and there's going to be people that love it. And ultimately, if I take those haters and turn them into lovers and listen to them and, and try and learn off them and try and um, understand the preferences that we can get better, we can make change happen. And I think that's that's the goal. That's that's the plan. That's the strategy. And, 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 and through all of that, if, again, coming back to my purpose, if we can empower people to find their space and their place, we can make societal change happen. So what will it, what will it kind of look like or what does it look like now and where do you see it going? Is, um, you, you know, there's often two problems with a person listing a job. Either you get no responses or you get like 300 and they're all nonsense. So, yeah, how are you improving the way that people can view the jobs on offer and the companies who are asking you to come and work there? And how are you helping those companies have a better measure of who they should be uh, following on with? Yeah, definitely. And I think I think that's, <laughs> you, you bring up a really good point. Um, and I mean, one of the big challenges as well in, in New Zealand is that you've got a lot of internationals as well applying for jobs that don't necessarily have the rights to work here. So that's also one of the big challenges with getting a lot of applicants. But I think... Um, you know, it, it for me, it really comes down to thinking a lot more deeply around the psychology of the job seeker. You know, what actually matters to that individual and how can we help deliver that to them in a way that matters? So one of the things that we've done is we've really built the entire platform around data points uh, and the enablement of a job seeker to search for jobs that matter. So you can search by, you know, the benefits and perks of a company or the cultural nuances of the company. I can look for all organisations that are B Corp or that have rainbow tech or pet-friendly offices or hybrid or remote and really building a platform that takes that is the most important first step. So we really encourage and, and, and help push our organisations to go deeper on who they are and what they want to stand for and then to deliver that in their job postings. Um, and then on top of that, we're and we're early in this development, but we're really on an incredible journey of of trying to figure out how we can better use AI and large language models and natural language processing to make sure that we deliver more meaningful results to candidates. And, you know, we've got really big goals and ambitions in that space as well to be the best in the world at that. Um, and we are not there yet. We've got an incredible path mapped out on how we want to achieve that, but 
it does it does take time and it takes you know data and understanding the nuances of of interactions of a candidate in the platform as well right like what does a swipe left tell me um, you know a pass what does a swipe down which is a save tell me what does a swipe right tell me about you as an individual and how do I keep on pushing the needle towards becoming more meaningful for you in your job hunting journey um, so I think that's that's a really important piece of the puzzle is is being meaningful in what we do so that we really appreciate and care for the time of the job seeker. And I, I remember having the one thing I wrote across the top of my wall um, when I was going through, you know, the search for for where we were going to disrupt is nothing in the HR process should have to be done twice. Yet we all know how repetitive it is, not just for candidates, but also for, for companies. Um, and you know, there's a lot of work to be done there to try and try and change that uh, because it's far from seamless at this point in time. But I'm on a mission to try and improve that. And you mentioned before about like the difficulties of building a double-sided marketplace. I suppose all marketplaces are double-sided, but you know, <laughs> building a marketplace, so you've got two different audiences and also that chicken and egg issue where without the candidates, you won't get the good job listings. Without the good job listings, yeah. you won't get the good candidates. So how are you using New Zealand as like a test case to kind of like scale and learn yeah. before going overseas? Yeah, I mean, New Zealand is incredible. The business community in New Zealand is phenomenal. Um, we have been very fortunate, or and I, I shouldn't say fortunate because we, we specifically chose to start in New Zealand because it is such a great testing ground, but um, we've really been able to build the most amazing relationships with companies that believe, companies that are happy to test and trial, um, companies that, you know, love being early adopters and want to come on this journey of change. And that's something that New Zealand has to offer that I don't know that would get in, in many other places. But we've been working with these amazing businesses and progressive leaders within them that are happy to see change and are happy to go through that that process with us. Um, and adds so much value to that, right? I mean, the, the the subset of businesses that we had signed on before we even launched was incredible. You know, we had 115 brands signed on to the business before the tech was even fully complete. Um, and so you sort of look at the launch and you say, oh, you know, that was such a great launch. But actually, that was months and months of grind, um, incredibly hard work um, to get to where, where we got to at launch, which was you know, having such a deep subset of believers and supporters and and people that were there to to share their knowledge and impart it upon zeal to ensure that it could be the best platform imaginable in the space. And that that was pretty powerful, you know, and, and that was so exciting for me to see. Uh, and it gave me a lot of confidence in, in New Zealand and where we can go if we truly do let businesses um, step up and help and support and if we can collaborate and work together as a team what you can achieve um, and so you know I love seeing that I love seeing collaboration at scale. What's the future you see like how will Zeal change up the way people look for jobs or people look for candidates? Yeah look I think I think where Zeal will really make change happen is just in motivating individuals to feel more positive and confident when they go into that job seeking journey. Um, and we are living in a very different world to the one which I started my career in. Um, we're living in a time and an age and a stage where, you know, 
individuals across New Zealand are probably going to have twice as many jobs as, as we had growing up. And, you know, what I want to see happen is those those people finding the right opportunities that they really get passionate about and can sink their teeth into and grow grow through. Um, so I see a future where there's a lot better connectivity. Um, there's, there's a tighter understanding of how the benefits of aligning the desires of a candidate with the culture of a business can achieve and unlock phenomenal results for all. Um, and, and a world within which individuals and talent in an organisation get as much gain out of the relationship as the business does. You've talked about how it started with your purpose. Tell us about the role of purpose here, because you know it's almost like a cliche, right? Like in shows like Silicon Valley, where people stand up and they go, you know, we exist to save the world or something, and that's a you know scheduling app or something. But like, how does purpose? help to make for a company that does have more engaged people and, you know, a, a um, kind of big, bigger than just work <laughs> impact on the world? And and how do you build a culture intentionally with that at the front? I think it all comes down to leading with purpose. And, you know, the, the, the one thing for me about this Zeal journey is that it anchors directly into my personal purpose, which I've known for so long, which is, as I alluded to earlier, the empowerment of people. And so when you have that purpose so closely aligned to leadership's mindset, it becomes infectious. You know, I can't help but be passionate in the space and I can't help but bring the energy in the space and I can't help but want to be constantly learning and becoming better and doing more and incrementally improving in the space. And when you have that environment, you ultimately, you know, bring people along on that journey that feel that same passion and purpose in what they do. And so, I really think it's 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 about um, leading from the front with that mindset, uh, and then being brave and being bold and being you know okay being different, um, because that builds confidence in in those around you. Um, you know, it's really interesting. I one of my very early um, projects that I did in in, in philanthropy uh, over in China was centered around uh, upskilling and helping provide work opportunities for predominantly single mothers um, that were located in the depths of China and the plateaus of China. And, you know, that was something that I was so passionate about because here we were finding these, these you know, underserved communities which had women within that that had never had the opportunity to be educated, never had the opportunity to gain those fundamental skills which could push them forward into a paid career. And, you know, in, in, in that journey, we, we, we put, and we still do now, um, at Zuru, over 800 women through school or through education on, a, on an annual basis. Um, and ultimately, when you change that woman's life, you're changing the generational impact um, for many to come, right? You you change her daughter's future or her son's future because that child now has the opportunity to get educated. And when you get educated, you have more opportunity to find the right work and to be positioned into uh, a path that can help to um, change 
your future and ultimately society. Uh, so for and I and you know that project was one that I would have started probably eight years ago now, um, but it just kind of anchors back again into you know this having been something that has always been at my core um, and it's always been a purpose for me is to make that generational change happen so to come back and to be able to realign into that with my next project is something that's such a natural fit but ultimately makes me um, I think so much more focused on the desired outcomes at the end and and thereafter able to build um, a business or a brand that does have purpose at its centre. What would your advice be to people who do want to get into making things, you know, at real scale and having impact on that kind of level? There's no sacrifice for hard work. Absolutely none. Um, so, you know, it, it, there's, it doesn't come easy. Um, you just have to keep going. So get up, get started, build a product that's useful, truly useful. Seek criticism. Be open to that. Build an environment of radical candor and then don't stop pushing. It's all about those incremental gains, right? It doesn't happen overnight. It's it's these tiny little steps forward that are incrementally pushing you in the direction of something bigger that ultimately enables you to, to, to build um, a successful organisation. So think big, start small and seek criticism at every step of the way. And then I think, you know, the one thing as well that's so, so important is to shake as many hands as possible, eyeball as many people as you can, and really be a sponge for information. You know, ask deep, meaningful questions and then be prepared to listen as deeply um, to the responses of those so that you can really continue to grow your understanding in scenarios and situations because, you know, you will never... You will never be able to stop, you know, you, um, you'll never stop learning as long as you constantly put yourself out there to be in that position to, to grow and to, to take on more. And as a final thought, what will success be for you personally and for Zeal? It's, it's a tricky one. It's a really <laughs> tricky one. I, um, <laughs> I don't know that I want to cap what success looks like for me. I don't know. Um I know that success for me will be raising an incredible family. Um, I really want to see my little ones go on to to be passionate and driven and and to love whatever they do. So so you know raising raising great children will be the epitome of success for me. Um, ultimately, as well, being a great wife and partner and enabling, you know, Ali to achieve his dreams, that's success for me. Um, when it comes to Zeal, you know, first step, I want to be the most loved recruiting app in Aotearoa. And then moving on from there, who knows, right? I, I um, you know, we want to go global pretty quick. Um, and, and there's no doubt about it that, you know, our big overarching goal is to be the most loved recruiting app globally. Um, and there's, it's all about stepping stones in that direction. But, um, yeah, success is, success is undefined at this point in time um, because I just want to keep dreaming big. Yeah, love it. Well, thank you so much for sharing part of your story to hear and can't wait to see where you go next. That's Anna Mowbray, founder at Zeal. Kia ora. 
So thank you to Anna, to you for listening, and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Samuel Robinson. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. Enohoda. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.